Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. Thank you very much, Lisa, and welcome, everybody. It's terrific to have such a turnout tonight in the midst of this campaign. And before you go any further, I too would like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we gather. Well, here we are, almost halfway through this six-week election campaign. It's quite a long time. I don't know how it's feeling to you. <laughs> so three weeks in, how much wiser are we about the competing visions of the major parties and are they actually offering much vision at all so far? To reflect on what we've learnt to this point and where the campaign goes from here, I'd like you to introduce you to our panel this evening. Duncan Iverson is Professor of Political Philosophy and was, just until this month, Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research at the University of Sydney uh, for the past six and a half years or so. Annika Gawia is Professor of Politics here at Sydney University. Welcome. Elizabeth Hill is Associate Professor of the Department of Political Economy and Deputy Director of the Gender Equality in Working Life Initiative. Kishore Napier-Rahman is a federal politics reporter at Crikey, former editor of Sydney Uni's newspaper, Onisoir. And, of course, Anthony Green knows no introduction. He's the ABC's election <laughs> analyst. We like to call him Mr Election around the ABC. <laughs> but he is also adjunct professor at Sydney Uni. So welcome, all of you. Could you please welcome the panel? <laughs> Again, thank you, all of you, for joining us. I want to start with a question to each of our panellists. I'll start with you, Duncan, and I'll just go around the grounds here. In one sentence, what's your impression of this election campaign so far? And I mean it in one sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, says the professor. <laughs> Never ask a philosopher for one sentence. So I, I think it's a war of attrition, sort of devoid, really, of any serious debate about vision and ideas. Okay. Liz, well okay. done, Duncan. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm disappointed that what should have been a care election has turned into a khaki election. Oh. And a bit surprised that three weeks in, we haven't seen the ALP pushing their childcare plan, which is a key cost of living issue and a critical piece of economic reform that could really push the coalition to, you know, raise the, you know, to meet their, their standards. Okay, a bit of a zinger there from Liz. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> and uh, actually, they did, they did do a, a launch on childcare today. They did. But was it high profile? No, it wasn't. Well, I'm kind of a bit bored, but you guys are clearly excited enough to be here to hear us talk about it. I will say, though, look, it's felt like a disjointed, vision-free, and at times quite unedifying scrap so far. Okay, vision-free, boring, and unedifying. <laughs> Annika. <laughs> Too bloody honest. long. <laughs> yeah. No, no, yeah, that'll do. <laughs> Stop right there. <laughs> Anthony. Uh, I was just going to say interminable. Okay. <laughs> Great, so we're getting the vibe, okay? We've got the vibe. Anthony, there is no election coverage in my mind without you. So before we go any further, I want to ask you as a very close watcher of election campaigns for a long time now, is there anything different that you're seeing about this election campaign? Anything that marks it from previous campaigns? Um, well, I think we're seeing an increasingly... I mean, each election is a bit further down that track of not being really about set-piece debates about policy. More and more, more and more campaigning is about messaging rather than policy. And so you're seeing phrases of the day. There's more and more of that occurring. And I think it's just, um, it's just quite extraordinary to watch sometimes. It makes it very difficult to actually cover an election campaign if it comes down to such short grabs from stuff. Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess we'll be discussing this. You wonder whether people bother to tune in for that, really. Um, Anthony... Let's clear up this at the beginning. We got a question from someone in the audience earlier about polling. We were all obviously felt completely misled by the polls in 2019, and most of the polls have acknowledged they got it wrong. Is the polling... There have been changes to the methodology. Do you have a sense of whether the polling is more accurate this time around? Can we have a sense of that? And, and how much can it tell us before all of us? Did you say more accurate? More accurate. We can only well, know that afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's true. They've put a lot of effort into improving it, but we won't know if they've done enough and whether it's accurate until afterwards. Well, from your sense of their, what they have done, their changes to their methodology, do we have, can we have any faith that that is a better method? Um, n no. Because, look, the simple, the simple problem they have in the United States, they cannot get Trump supporters to answer polls. 
And that's what's gone wrong with polling there. Remember, polling doesn't always work. If you went to Europe until about the 1980s, opinion polls were basically unknown on the continent. You couldn't do an opinion poll. People wouldn't tell you how they voted. They'd lived through two world wars, fascism, you know, all that sort of stuff. They wouldn't tell you who they voted for. I think there's some people in society and I will not tell you who they vote for. Now, I don't think that's as big a problem here. In the age of social media, people tell you everything about their lives all the time. Yeah. So, what, what the but hell? But I think, I think that's, that's why, look, we'll have to assess it afterwards. But, all right. Uh, yeah. And just before I move to the general discussion, we know this election will not be won on a national swing anyway. So, what are the polls telling us? It'll be won in a small number of seats in a smaller number of states. Can we... Can we know, find out anything much from perhaps the leaders' movement so far about which states this will be won or lost in? Or are you clear on that? Uh, well, it will be... The government to hold office has to hold its seats in Queensland and Western Australia. If it loses seats, it has to win seats in other states. It has a very narrow path to, to victory, but I said that last time as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it's even harder this time, particularly with the way Western Australia has turned in the last few years. Um, I'd say, I think there's a bit of an over-concentration on individual seats. The, the seats, while you don't get a national swing in that way, the swing is relatively uniform in each state. They didn't win the last election with individual seats in Queensland. They won it with a 4.5% swing. So I think there's a tendency to, to mistake... Yes, but that 4.5% swing was not the swing in every state. I mean, the, no, the swing in Queensland... No, but it was in Queensland. Queensland. That's what I mean, is that it's a state... The, the swings are distributed around the state swing. Okay. They're not distributed around the national swing. So that's why the first thing to watch for on election night is what's happening in Queensland and Western Australia. It can't be the first thing in Western Australia, of course, because they're two hours behind. Okay. But, <laughs> but you'll, see a you'll see a reliable swing there. New South Wales is a bit both ways. And then you, can, you may get a significant swing in Victoria, but it doesn't deliver any seats. So there's a bit of a peculiarity around the country. All right. So in other words, we all have to stay tuned to you, glued to the set on Saturday, <laughs> May the 21st. Let's talk about what is happening in this campaign. And this week, um, very, it's very much about the economy. Now, the economy is always pretty much central to election campaigns. This week, though, we got that inflation figure of 5.1%. Kish, as the um, sort of generalist completely enmeshed in everything at the moment through this. Um, that, that, you know, highest inflation number in 20 years sent a bit of a shock, I think, through the campaign bunkers, particularly of the election. Josh Frydenberg really couldn't hide his, his shock, I think, at that election campaign. Both sides started off, though, with an economic message. Who do you think that high inflation rate and potentially the impact of that on rates works for or against? Well, look, it can't be good news for a government that has sort of pinned a lot of its sort of its chances of re-election on being the kind of steady hand of economic management. You know, the coalition, I think, would have initially wanted this to be a debate about the handling of the economy because there is this sort of... I guess it's a bit of a meme around in Australian politics that the co coalition are superior economic managers. But that being said... This is a, a, an inflation rate we haven't seen for two decades, you know, the, the, and those cost of living pressures, this isn't just purely an academic thing, this is something that people are feeling at the petrol pump every day, it's something they're feeling every time they go to buy their groceries and stuff like that, and, and, and that's something that really affects how people vote. So, you know, a big part of the coalition's strategy to get re-elected was, look, compared to the rest of the world, our unemployment is, you know, our economy's doing okay, the COVID situation's okay, we're here, we might not be the most popular party around. You might not like Scott Morrison's vibe, but hold your nose, stick with the devil you know. It gets a little bit harder for them to make that pitch when you've got this historically high um, inflation rate. And when, if the RBA does what's expected and pushes up cash rate next week, the last time that happened was two weeks out before John Howard lost government in 2007. And, you know, there's some, I guess, some symmetry to that, isn't there? But do you think that... The, I mean, the Prime Minister holding up that graph saying, look at the inflation rate in New Zealand, look at it in Canada, and look where we are, how great are we? And that international comparison that's being made across a whole number of areas, do you think that is persuasive to the voters? Well, it, it might be persuasive to some, because, you know... Are I, you persuaded I, by it? Well, you know, I'm not going to tell you how I vote. <laughs> um, but, look, at the end of the day, people aren't persuaded by graphs, right? They're not persuaded by the, the rest of the world. They're persuaded by their own sort of personal experience. So, look, even if it is worse in the rest of the world, when suddenly you go and petrol is sure. a price that's not been in years, that's what you're really thinking. That's what you're feeling. And that's how kind of, 
I think regular people will probably be weighing up when they go to the ballot box. Well, Annika, a lot of regular people will be panicking right about now, I think, about an interest rate rise a lot. I mean, 60% of mortgage holders have variable interest rates, so things are going to go up. Do you think that changes the game in any w way, in which way? Yes, I do. And I think it changes the game because it takes the election campaign out of the control of the two major parties. So it's an event that punctuates the campaign that they haven't because really the Reserve Bank Board for. is independent. It's completely independent and it will lift or not lift interest rates according to its own you know, decision next week. So th it affects the campaign in that way and it negatively affects the government. As Kishore mentioned, we have precedent for this. This happened in 2007, just before John Howard um, lost government. And it affects them also because we see the Liberal Party as the party that's traditionally associated with economic management. And even before the interest rate rise was an issue, I think the Liberal Party was on very shaky ground with that, with the cost of living pressures that were cited. Um, also with, you know, just to sort of also draw a parallel with national security as a, another element of debate that really privileges governments. Um, national security was invoked very, very early on in the campaign as something that the government has lost control over too in the agenda. And the pandemic, we haven't seen the pandemic really eventuate no. so far in the campaign but uh, I think you know that's been kept off the table because again the government's record in management of that issue as a sort of a domestic security issue and a health issue hasn't been fantastic but either. But Duncan the government's answer to why will people not count them down for an interest rate rise or inflation hike is because people understand that as these very factors these global factors like a pandemic like a war in Ukraine that are driving up the prices so they won't count the government down on that. Yeah, look, I mean, I th you know, it was Tip O'Neill famously said, you know, all politics is local. And I think uh, at some level, it's going to be, uh, as Keith said, what people are encountering, you know, in their daily lives, in, in the shops, at the schools, how it's impacting their families, that's going to dominate a lot of the, the, the political campaigning. I think the really interesting thing, though, from my perspective, is the government's sense of ownership of responsibility for managing these global uh, issues and how well they're able to, in a sense, frame those issues as a matter of trust and as a matter of being aligned with the values that the government is trying to sort of promote to the population. And I think, like uh, Annika, I feel like the Prime Minister is sort of losing the ability to control that agenda in a way that he probably thought was a strength to begin with, right? And I think that's something that uh, I just felt it switch this week a bit. Um, okay. Liz, I've seen polling, you know, lot came out not long after the budget that I saw that suggests women in outer suburban seats mm. are more focused on cost of living and were most impressed by the cost of living measures in the Frydenberg budget. Um, you know, the $250 checks arrived this week for yep. people. How do you see the cost of living affecting the women's vote? And does it even make sense for us to think of such a thing? as the women's vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially when we're talking about cost of living. Yeah. Look, what we learned from the last election and from our colleague Sarah um, Cameron's work on the Australian election survey is that Australian women are increasingly voting for Labor and the Greens, right? Um, so you'd think after the couple of years we've had, just in terms of the pandemic in, of disrespect and the failure, the abject failure of the coalition to manage that at all, um, and the fact that Australian women lost more jobs and hours than Australian men, even though we've bounced back to historic highs in participation rates. You would think that that trend is going to continue. But I think the thing that cautions me is that in the 2019 election, the ALP took to the Australian public a really comprehensive set of policies that the research evidence would suggest was going to really shift the dial on gender equality. And what did Australian women do? Well, 37% of them voted for Labor and the rest didn't. Mm. So I think it's really hard to read the women's vote. Cost of living pressures, I think, always play pretty strong for household managers. We know that women are predominantly the ones that are doing most of the kind of household management. Um, so they're very attentive to these. And this is why I think issues like childcare could really cut through and shift that that. That debate. Okay, that so vote. your opening comment about you're hoping for a care election, we're getting a yeah. car key one. <laughs> well, Labor's slogan is all about care. Yeah. It's Medicare, aged care, Absolutely. child care, Labor cares. So they need to be shouting that out. I mean, I think the 
you know, Australian women... But does that, as you say, that doesn't necessarily trump the hip pocket? It, no, it's a complex interplay, right? But yeah. if, if they're actually serious about those, those policies and they can get them out and really talk about them in clear detail, that's going to change. Like, their commitment to paid pay wages for aged care workers, their childcare plan, all these things could really lift the wages of highly feminised care workers. That is a... A cost of living issue, right? Because the piece that wasn't talked about in this cost of living in the kind of interest rate and inflation rate debate is that that, that plays out. There's a three prongs to that problem. Wages, inflation and, um, and interest rates. And wages have been flat for a decade. And so we've, if we've got these policies that could see some uplift, we're, you know, it's going to moderate concerns around inflation and um, interest rates. Okay. Um Duncan scare campaigns, they emerged very early in this campaign. You were all used to them, but they really, to come out in week two, surprised me. Mm. The fact that they're coming out, and they're all the ones we've heard before, also surprised me, but then I'm easily surprised, I suppose. Um, party strategists are adamant that scare campaigns work and voters are driven more by fear than inducements, than positive offerings. Do you think that's true? And if it is, does it come at a cost? Look, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in part. So, I mean, it, it is something that people say, well, it works, that's why it happens. I mean, you know, my dad used to say, you get the politicians you deserve, right? And there is something, I think, profound about that. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we asking enough of our politicians and enough of our parties? It's very easy for us to complain, as I did, about the lack of vision, about the lack of a genuine contest of ideas, about often the contradictory impulse that we have towards we want an, a, a debate about ideas, but the minute a politician says something slightly edgy or controversial, wham, mm. they get hammered. And, and, you know, the media and, and the, you know, the politicians are responding to something they see in the culture. So I think it's a real problem for our political system as a whole. And, and I suppose we've seen that writ large, haven't we, with yeah. the trans women debate absolutely. around the Warringah candidate at the captain's Absolutely, pick. absolutely. So there's a sense in which that's a genuinely important, serious issue. There's a shift, profound shift in our culture around gender and sexuality. And, and it's complex. Some, and it's, it's complex. complex. It requires nuance. It requires debate. There are genuine debates to be had. Mm. And yet we seem to be incapable of having them. I mean, let alone debates about climate. Like, where is climate in this election <laughs> right now? It is an existential threat to the planet. And yet we have, you know, technology, not taxes, and a kind of, um, you know, a kind of race to the bottom from the other side of politics to make sure they don't scare the horses. So I think there's something about populism right now that our system has to grapple with. Populism has a dirty sort of, it's a dirty word, but we need to find a way to, to engage people about these complex issues that do scare them, but we shouldn't be indulging in that fear. Mm. And, and that, I think, is one of the big questions for liberal democracies uh, as a whole right okay, now. Okay, but the we is all of us. We will come back and talk more about climate too. Don't worry about that. But Annika, mm. I mean, of, you know, obviously true. The more scare pans, campaigns you have, the less room there is for policy debate. Mm. Will voters notice? Do they care? I mean, we... Are, the voters are the we, and we're all responsible for this? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that parties use scare campaigns because they are effective in a campaign, because they expose two things. They expose the parties to vulnerability in terms of policy detail and policy complexity. And Australian political debates and campaigns, and this one is no exception, are not good at articulating policies and having complex debates over mm. policy. And part of that is cultural, Part of that is also, you know, isolating Australia is a very interesting comparative example, is we're a democracy where our political parties before elections aren't compelled or required, and they don't, release policy manifestos. In Europe, in the UK, in Canada, all the parties have got really detailed policy manifestos, and that sort of forms the basis for a much more robust discussion around policy issues at elections. It doesn't eliminate scare campaigns, but it certainly allows the parties and the voters to talk about some of the detail behind those Well, policies. I think if you ask Bill Shorten, he'd say not only does it not eliminate <laughs> scare campaigns, it <laughs> opens them up. I mean, mm. he did have mm. a significant Labor at that going into that had significant policy manifesto. But if Liberal had the same, then it would be a more even playing field. Mm, okay. Houston had one as well. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, <laughs> indeed. Kishore, you've drilled down, I know, into these scare campaigns and scare campaigns of the past. What did you unearth in terms of why the parties resorted to them so early? 
I mean, we've talked about them. They work, right? Like, they're really, really effective. If you look at the last two elections, yeah, campaigns have played a huge part. In 2016, you know, Labor sort of winked about uh, the Libs destroying Medicare, and that was it played a huge part in Bill Shorten really overperforming and or pushing the government to the brink. You know, the last election, I mean, there were so many. This one about, you know, Labor bringing in a death tax, a retirement tax... Mm-hmm that it was going to destroy coal mines. And, and a lot of that stuff, you know, it wasn't necessarily megaphone from the leaders. It wasn't even necessarily, you know, driven by the media as well. It just often operated in this kind of like suboptimal space, uh, subaltern space through social media. It, it just became an idea that caught on. And once that idea catches on, it's really, really effective. And they're replaying the greatest hits this time around. I mean, that stuff about the death tax um, and the retirement tax has been simmering away through Facebook. And, you know, both sides are doing it. Labor have really talked about the, the Liberals putting all pensioners onto the cashless welfare card. Like, there's no basis for that. The government repeatedly says, no, we're not going to do that. There's no way on this earth a coalition government happen. would do we're that We're not going to do it. And then, you know, Labor, Albanese or, or senior Labor shadow ministers get questioned about it. They're like, well, look at this statement that they made that could plausibly be spun as pointing to that, like, five years ago. So, really, that's the thing. They need a kernel of truth to it and a kind of disengaged electorate that's not paying a huge amount of attention. And then, you know, that's it. And then is there another category of scare campaign? I'm thinking, you know, the government wanted, as you noted, Liz, this election to to have a, a national security feel to it. They really thought that would resonate well for them. It thinks Labor traditionally is wary of... The electorate is wary of Labor on national security... That really wasn't getting much traction, and then lo and behold, we got the China Solomon's mm. security pact smack bang in the middle of it all. Duncan, does that come into the category of scare campaigns, do you think? I mean, it's a significant foreign policy issue. We had a debate sort of around the issue, and some elements of, of the electorate did. But uh, from no, the government's look, point of view, is that just a scare campaign? N- look, I, I'm not sure it's a scare campaign. I mean, it, it's, you know, events uh, happen, and it's one of those... Uh, inevitable, unanticipated <laughs> events that, that emerges in a campaign. It, again, it, it comes down to how the parties are able to frame those issues in terms of the values and the, the broader framework they're providing to the Australian public. And I think, as we, I think most of us were saying at the beginning, that space has just been so attenuated now, as Anthony said, year after year, that it's very hard to make sense of the differences and the important differences that one could take to that issue in particular, right? Like, mm. what is our Pacific? What is our agenda for the Pacific? I mean, what should our engagement with the Pacific be? How do we actually think about these issues in a, in a broader foreign policy and value-informed way? That's just completely missing. Mm. So inevitably, when the you know, events occur, we're left with you know, the kind of the politics of it in, in the pure mm. sense rather than those broader but debates. But is that partly because there's not actually much difference between Correct. the policies of both sides? I mean, they actually both have the same formula. So here's the question. In this case, is, by and large. Here's the question. Is that because we've had a robust conversation <laughs> about Australia's role in the Pacific and we've arrived at a kind of communal consensus about the appropriate way to handle this? Well, I don't think so. Um, something else has happened. <laughs> is, that, is that because of that or not? <laughs> Look, I think it's, it came along as another sort of opportunity for the government to uh, create and frame a crisis and try to exploit a crisis, national security. And I think that it's sort of lost steam because it is such a, a difficult policy issue and both political parties are going to have, you know, trouble sort of convincing the voters that they have the, the track record on it. And it's also a complex issue because it doesn't just end at the Solomons. It's, you know, mm. picks up mm. China yeah. as well. And that's uh, the bigger problem. It mm. does pick mm. up China. And you'd have to think that does perhaps fall mm. in the category of scare mm. campaign. But just, Keish, just before we leave this, the government is saying privately and public, really, as long as it's talking about national security, they feel like they're on their territory and it works for them. Labor did find that very strong sort of rhetorical attack line of the worst foreign policy failure in the Pacific since the Second World War. Do you have a sense of which side feels like they're, they're winning this skirmish? Well, yeah, look, traditionally the government, the coalition thinks 
national security is good for them. They really wanted this to be a khaki election. You know, all the kind of sound bites and the messaging before the campaign was Labor can't be trusted with this scary world out there with war and China and all that kind of thing. And some of the stuff Peter Dutton and Morrison were saying in Parliament was, you know, calling um, Richard Miles a Manchurian candidate of the Chinese Communist Party. It's this insane language. But look, I think it's just like stepping away. And I think the Solomons issue has made it harder for them because it's, it is, I think, a clear failure. But on foreign policy, I think this has actually been a pretty poor government on that kind of stuff. It's felt like the way they've handled diplomacy. I mean, look at Macron and AUKUS has been often very impulsive. There's been a sidelining of, of, of DFAT and, and sort of the diplomats and how they've done things. There was at times a, a far too cosy relationship with Donald Trump. We've kind of forgotten about all of that. The way they've dealt with China could often be, you know, obviously the relationship with China has been really fraught, but very tactless at times. So really, it's interesting that the government still thinks of this as a strong point because mm. I don't think it's been particularly good on these issues. Yes, and but... to jump sorry, in there, yeah, Fran, just, I mean, the slashing, complete slashing of the foreign aid budget... Um, which happened under the Abbott government. Which it started then and just has kept going um, because it's not a vote winner, right? So it's an easy line item to just to kind of slash each budget that comes along. And so then your friends are left hanging out to dry. And I think it's been interesting that the ALP's response to the current crisis has actually been a bit of a return to a standard way of treating the Pacific. So, you know, investing in labour um, labor programs, labour mobility programs, even enhancing those, allowing Pacific labour workers to bring their families, those kinds of things. So, you know... No commitment yet on labour on where they're going to set hmm. foreign aid, is it? No, not that I've heard of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a, a commitment to, you know, bump it back up. Yeah, okay, but just leaving that, just coming back to a question that came in a little earlier that I missed from Adam. Um, Associate Professor Hill mentioned Labor wasn't shouting their care policies from the rooftops, and the media often mentions voters not truly knowing Anthony Albanese. To what extent is this Labor's fault? Is the media not responsible for not covering the ALP? Do you have a sense of that? I mean, I. I have a view on that, but... <laughs> no, uh, my, view, my view, you know, we've had almost three weeks and they're not shouting loud enough. Um, they've got good policies that really respond to the crisis in our care systems that was exposed by the pandemic. Um, it's a strong card. Why wouldn't you be playing it? Um, and it is, as I said, it's, um, it's a cost of living. It's an everyday um, issue that gets negotiated at the household level. So I'm, I'm perplexed as to why they haven't... Talked more about it. They've got a lot to say. I have views. Does anyone on this panel have a view on why Labor's not? Because I agree with you. Mm. You know, I've been saying it myself. Mm. Uh, not so much Labor. But I think it's a peculiarity of Australian politics that every policy has a cost attached. And you know, I think they're fighting about, the last election. <laughs> you're, you're constantly buried by the numbers about how much policy costs. There's not, there's not a principled argument about this is good policy. Mm. It's all... T turned into the budget, and it's something we've had in our politics since the 80s. I mean, this is a really, I mean, I just spent the last week in Canada, and some people, I mean, and Liz and I were chatting about it before, I mean, Quebec has had uh, originally $5, now $10 uh, a day daycare for 30 years, and there's been a huge amount of research, assessment, evaluation of the policy. Justin Trudeau's just put $30 billion on the table. Now, what was interesting, uh, when that announcement was made in the budget uh, last week, the Conservative Party in Canada was like, it's a good policy. Yeah. We support it. So, look, there is hope, right? Like, there are other places <laughs> where you can have, you know, reasonable debates about these things. So, I, I mean, it goes back to Anthony, but like, why, you know, and there could be a reasonable debate about mm. the best form of childcare. So, for example, in but Quebec... But there's so much research on it. Exactly. We know we the know, research we, is we, there, but... But that very, gets very yeah. little coverage. So I think it's also points to our failure of current governments um, in the last few elections to actually pitch economic reform. Like, you know, we haven't had, you know, as many commentators say, reasonable economic reform, what, since the GST? Hmm. It's a long time ago. And yet we know from the research, you know, we, we're now a service economy, high rates of participation by women. You know, what kind of... Um, social service systems do we need to support that, to unleash women's labour supply? You know, we're the most highly educated in the world, ranked number one globally, and we, we pitch up at 70th in terms of um, economic participation and opportunity. I mean, it's pathetic. Why would you waste that kind of resource? And 
Governments talk about productivity, they talk about growth, but they certainly haven't shifted to investing in the kinds of economic reform like early childhood education and care, universal and free, and like I'm um, a generous paid parental leave. And the package we got from Labor today, as you say, not shouting for the rooftop, yeah. but they announced it last year, and the, the small change we got from the government in the budget, does yeah. that go close to? Oh, we have so far to go. And, you know, Canada just really shows us up that, you know, $30 billion to build a national community early childhood education and care system. I mean, that, that's vision. That changes how households operate. That changes the kinds of decisions um, that men and women can make about how they work and how they care. We've got everything to benefit from that. Well-being, prosperity, productivity, growth. You know, frame it any way you like. Okay. Let's go to climate. It's the perennial scare campaign, but let's not deal with it just on that level. I mean, because that has left us with policy stagnation, no doubt about it. We've seen more of it this week. Scott Morrison labelling Labor's policy, which is essentially implementing the government's policy, a sneaky carbon tax. Uh, Duncan, I know you've, you mentioned already you've been waiting for this to come up in the campaign. We've got it in this kind of turgid way today, this week. I'm assuming this is not the way you've been wait, wanting it to come no, up. No, look, I think it is a really um, a prime example of uh, here you have a kind of existential threat uh, facing the planet. You have uh, a lot of rich policy, a lot of rich thinking going on about how best to address um, the, the planet's warming and, and the consequences for us. You have a country like Australia that, if it's not burning, is drowning. And you have a population, I think, basically begging, I think, the political system to engage them in this debate, and yet it's not happening. I think it's too easy to say that natural resources industry is crushing the debate. In many ways, they have moved further than the government on many of the mainstream issues. So why isn't it happening? And uh, my, I mean, I'm not a political scientist. Uh, Etika and others will have a better, I think, uh, rationale for this. But it, it's almost as if, in this case, we talked about scare campaigns for the population. It's almost as if po political classes scared themselves into really tackling this issue in a significant way. Have the political classes scared themselves, Annika, or have they seen how they can use it as a handy wedge? I mean, this weekend, we, this week rather, we've seen the coalition at odds with itself over climate policy with the a National Party Senator, LNP Senator, but Nationals in that canavan declaring net zero targets are dead, it's all over, it's dead around the world. He was slapped down publicly, sort of, by Scott Morrison and, and plenty of others. Um, but is there a sense that everyone knows very clearly what Matt Canavan is doing? He's telegraphing a message in one part of the country. Mm. Scott Morrison and others are telegraphing a different message mm. in another part of the country, in the major cities. So... Is, is that simply the answer why? Well, it's a pretty... I mean, that sort of mixed messaging, multi-messaging is a pretty standard technique, but I don't think climate change is the right topic or the right policy issue to do that because it assumes, I think, that there are some distinct attitudes in the country and rural electorates around climate change, which we know is not the case. We know it's a complex mm. policy issue. You have farmers who will who will, um, you know, uh, see the longer-term effects of climate change as being detrimental to their, to their businesses and will support measures to reduce it. You'll have the resource industry who won't support measures to reduce it, obviously. So the way it plays out in regional Australia is far more complex than a... Urban Australia supports climate change action, regional Australia doesn't. But Labor would tell you, Bill Shorten would tell you last time, that it did cost him. Because it cost him because, you know, the... the uh, the analysis, mm. their post-election analysis said that the having seemed to be being sneaky, giving a different message there to here, you know, didn't work very well. And it's certainly the, the coalition's co um, climate scare resonated in the bush. That's what they would say. Well, I, I think... Now, we're three years on. Yeah, exactly. I think a, d a difference of three years in this field has made a huge, a huge difference. And I think people's views are shifting, particularly as natural disasters are increasing, which affects a much more, you know, it affects everybody in the electorate. It affects Liberal voters in the Upper North Shore as much as it does um, Labor voters in Western Sydney who are really, really hot, uh, and also, you know, people in the country. Just, uh, just, two quick, yeah. just two quick things, Fran, on that. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I do think there is something that social democratic parties probably have not got right, not just in Australia, but elsewhere, and that is, you know, there's this easy phrase, just transition, but what does that actually mean? What do you say to, you know, a steel worker or, you know, a pipe fitter who is earning, you know, good wages, is able to support their family, 
live the lifestyle they want. It's not good enough to say, you know, we'll find you great jobs in uh, sort of renewables. I think that's one thing that hasn't really been, I think, tackled, and, and that's contributed, I think, to the stagnation. I think the other thing is, stepping back even further uh, from the issue, is liberal democracies struggle increasingly with not just complexity, but long-term mm. issues. How do you build a sustainable long-term policy approach when you've got three-year election cycles, 24-hour media, you know, sort of firestorms? That's a serious issue for liberal democracies more generally, I think. Yeah, um, mm. Kish, I think that's true. I think the three-year mm. electoral cycles are a big part of that. Um, but, you know, the electorate, there is a sense, uh, and certainly the business community, as has been said, have moved on, but the parties seem stuck in mm. the, basically, they're frightened. They're frightened of being hammered again. They're frightened of a big, of moving forward with a big idea and actually, you know, working it through. And those things are difficult. Labor did come out with a quite a detailed policy, I suppose, last year uh, around that transition, but not nearly as detailed as it needs to be for people to really trust that their job will be replaced. And there's no easy answer to that because no. it won't happen quickly. No. You know. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I think one of the things when we were talking about the fear is that the 2019 election result was such a kind of shock and a surprise. And it, it was such a big shock and a surprise that it has really framed everything that's happened mm. in the three years since in terms of how parties have thought about winning this next election. I think that's mm. definitely framed a lot of the kind of fear around climate. It struck me, look, that both major parties you know, the business council who called the shortened target in 2019 economy wrecking and now <laughs> demanding mm. something more bold than both parties are putting out there, right? Um, look, both parties are trying to solve their own internal climate wars. For Labor, it's about threading that needle with the hunter and coal country in central Queensland and, and while also keeping the cities in check. And suddenly the Libs face this kind of, like, teal issue that means that they can't really use the same messaging that Matt Canavan's using up in Rockhampton it, it, over here in Rose Bay, right? It doesn't work anymore. Um, and, and so that suddenly becomes really difficult for both parties to kind of thread that needle on climate. But one other last quick point there, on, on when we're talking about people in the bush and we're talking about people in these coal communities, I think that there is a slightly dismissive and patronising way in which we consider them as people that don't really understand issues like just transition, don't understand issues like, you know, the, the inevitable end of the coal industry. Um, in Flynn in central Queensland, which is one of those key seats with a lot of coal miners, you know, more than half the electorate said that they thought climate was one of the most important issues, mm -hmm. I think, or something well, like that. Well, that's the point Annika so, was yeah, making, like, exactly. Yeah. But I don't know that it's... I don't know if it's patronising or a, just a sense that these things mean different things for different mm. people in different places. Mm -hmm. They have very different meaning. And um, you've got to figure that out. You've got to go in there and spend a lot of time in those yeah. places and work out your policies and be brave enough to explain those to people, exactly as John Howard did for several years before mm. he introduced the GST, mm. you know, that mm. this mm. will cost you mm. in some mm. places, but we are going to mm. make it up with this, this mm. you know, reimburse you here and give you this mm. credit here. And, you know, that was a hard argument and a hard slog for Peter Costello and John Howard. Yeah. We haven't seen that kind no. of effort on anything mm -mm. since then. You, met, you brought up the teal issue, as you call it. <laughs> Let's go to that, because there's a, a fair bit of interest from, the, um, from the, yeah. the audience too. Climate is certainly a unifying issue for the so-called teal independence, um, as is the National Integrity Commission, of course. Let's talk about the impact, Anthony, I'll come to you on this, of the independents and the minor parties on the left and the right of this campaign. You talk about partisan de-alignment. What does that mean and what's happening? Well, I mean, the, our, our parties still have the shadows. Most of I mean, when I was when I was studying politics 30, 40 years ago, the standard description of party systems around the world was apart from Belgium and Canada, they were the same as in 1920. Now, some of that is unpicked since, but Australia is one of the oldest stable party systems in the world, and it still has the shadows of we've got three parties, party of labour, party of urban capital, and a party of rural capital, and that's what they are still named as. And that shadow has come down through inherited uh, allegiances. But that's not the alignments we have today. I mean, I remember 1996 was the first really big sign of it. Since that was the year that Labor lost Hughes for the first time. Mm. This was a seat which has got the highest proportion of trades workers. How is that? Well, it's, it's more that the way they relate to the workforce changed over the previous decade as the privatisation of the big corporations, the outsourcing, those sorts of things which worked 
turned people who were traditionally wage earners into self-employed. It changed the way they relate. And you're seeing that now with, say, the Hunter Valley. You're seeing, um, look, coal miners, miners are, compared to chicken gutters and other people who are working class, they are the royalty of the working class. They are high paid, working for large corporations, generally heavily unionised. So they're a different sort of worker who's often more affected by things like tax policy than they are by, by wages conditions policy. So there's th that sort of de-alignment's occurring on one side of the Labour Party, aggravated by the climate change issues. And on the other side of politics, you've got people who are traditional liberals who, who don't like some of the more populist way political issues are expressed nowadays in modern campaigning. They are in concerned about integrity. They are concerned about climate change. And you say, and, and they, you know, the, the, there's a term that was used, it grew in prominence in about 2004, which I hated, which was doctor's wives. Dismissing people because they're like, you know, yeah. it's just one of those horrible terms. It says, "Oh, it's only because you're rich you can compare about compare, care about human rights." Well, people do care about human rights, and it is important they care about them, and it's just not something that can be dismissed. And so it's the same de-alignment occurring on both sides. And just still, so simply, people are not don't define themselves by their job like they used to. So okay. that's the other aspect. Can of I just ask you before we get to because of People wanting to know who's going to win in Kuyong Wentworth, Anthony, so I should have let, Let's talk about Clive Palmer, because last time around, he had a massive influence, I think, on the outcome of the campaign. Not because for his $80 million he got anyone elected, but a big slab of that went in anti-Bill Shorten la uh, ads and anti-Labor ads. Labor credits that, I think, uh, particularly with their loss in Queensland. Are we going to see that kind of impact again from Clive Palmer? Can we say yet? I don't know. I mean, this is, I am sitting, I have been waiting for months. When is he going to pivot? What's he going to do? Well, it happened late last time. It happened late last time and it just flooded Labor's campaign. And it, it's, why, it's why not only their first preference vote down, but it was why flows of preferences to Labor were so weak last time. It's not how to vote cards that cause preference flows. It's, it's the whole attitude <laughs> of what people think. Where should my next preference go? And it was the strongest flow of preferences from one nation and, and Palmer United, not Australia, we'd ever seen before at the last election. And it was built around that, around that, that, that message you get across. Everything I've ever seen, I've been doing a lot of work on this in the last two or three years. It's not how to vote and preference deals that cause preference flows. It's where people think their preferences should go. And they may, most people tend to make up their own mind in one way or other okay. uh, on that sort of issue. Now, I don't know what he's going to do in the next three weeks. What's he going to do? What's his changed message? If he doesn't shift to saying preference the coalition, if he continues, he says to, he won't. If he runs off and continues to frolic on um, on, on the anti-vax mandate stuff, if, if he's still on that, the preference flows from that group are, not, are going to be a bit more general and all over yeah. the place. Yeah. And that's remember last time in Queensland, the Liberal vote did not go up. Labor's votes fell. It was a third-party vote that went up, and there were stronger preferences. William Bow, uh, Paul Bludger, has done some research on this and suggests that the the United Palmer vote is strongest in Victoria, much stronger it is in Victoria, for instance, than it is in WA, which would be a shift from last time. That would be surprising in some ways, but that's all about the anti-vax. Uh, I'm waiting to see how yeah. the actual result <laughs> comes out. What <laughs> about the so-called independents in the past few elections? Independents have looked like, particularly last time around, being a real chance in some of those seats, a seat like Kuyong. Josh Frydenberg was extremely worried. I must say he was looking a little worried today, I thought, too. But <laughs> will it be any different this time, do you think? Well, let me ask the question from uh, who's asked me this. David, independents, will they win in Kuyong and Wentworth? Thanks, David. <laughs> 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 they, will, they will win some seats. I mean, like, I, I would suspect it's most likely they win two or three. Don't ask me which ones. Um, but the um, Kuyong one was, in it was, was Julian Burnside as a Green last time. Now, if he'd been an independent, he might have had a better chance of winning. Um, often, you have a better chance of winning as an independent. I, I always say that independents win because of their names. There isn't one party MP in that parliament at the moment, or who's in parliament, who's elected because of who they are. They were all elected because they had a party label. No independent is elected because of the word independent the ballot paper. They're elected because when voters turn up, they know who the name is. Do you think that's true of Helen Haynes? Um, she inherited... Rebecca Sharkey? Just because Helen, Helen Haynes... Oh, Rebecca came in a party. Well, Rebecca Sharkey was elected as a Nick Xenophon yeah. candidate. Yeah, that's right. So um, that was a name. Look, the voices of Indi is effectively a political party for Indi. And, and also, the other thing would say, country electorates are different. 
if you're a candidate and you don't have 60 to 70% recognition in a, in a country electorate, you can't win. If you can get 30 or 40 in a city electorate, you're doing well. Yeah. Annika, do you see signs that's any different this time in terms of the fate of the prospects of the independent? Yeah, look, I think there is a lot that's different this time in this election campaign. And I think there's a sort of a confluence of, of, of a perfect storm, a number of factors. And the first, as Anthony mentioned, that longer term decline in, in the party vote. The second goes to that, that question that's been asked a lot in the media and, you know, Jason Felinski was talking about last night is, and Anthony mentioned, are these independents independents or are they political parties? Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point because the way in which they are organising, the strategies that they have, the sophistication of the strategies, the resources, the groundswell of support, the mobilisation tactics that they're employing at the moment, they are way more effective than political parties at the moment in mobilising supporters in these places. So I actually think, you know, irrespective of the, the success of individual independence, we are seeing quite an interesting shift away from the major parties to a different type of political organisation, mobilisation, which I think, you know, started, you know, started in Indi, it was quite prominent with the, it's been prominent with Voices for. I know Voices for movements have been mobilising for the last two years mm -hmm. in many rural electorates, and I can see that continuing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, maybe, I mean, maybe it's a response, sorry, Fran, I mean, maybe it's a response to this need for more complexity in our system to account for the more complex preferences and beliefs that people have to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of other explanations for, you know, why different independents are running uh, on the basis they are, but if we take a step back, I mean, we're seeing it happen in, in a sort of negative way in other parts of the world, um, you know, Orban, Trump, obviously, but, you know, another way to think of it is, well, our political system is, is actually slowly, creakingly responding to the fact that people have complex beliefs that aren't tightly aligned with either their job profile or the suburb they live in. Mm. We're, we're going to run out of time very quickly. There will be time for a few questions at the end, so don't worry. But I, I want to go to, I can't remember who brought this up, but the fact that, Annika, was it you, that the pandemic really hasn't factored mm. yet in this campaign. Someone's mentioned that. Mm. A few months ago, I was saying in my podcast and all over the place that this this election would be a, a referendum on Scott Morrison's handling of the pandemic. Well, it hasn't been. It's barely been mentioned. Liz, for the hundreds and thousands of women in the frontline roles mm. responding to the pandemic, the nurses, mm. the aged care workers, the retail staff, is the pandemic still front of mind for them? And, and will they judge the government on the handling of it? Mm. Good, that's a great question. Um, I think considering that it was really only March that households were starting to kind of return exactly. to some kind of normal. I would like to think it's still in their minds and they're still, you know, we know from our research, Ray, Ray Cooper and my research, that those women are real, you know, they're, as we like to say, whiplashed and weary on mm -hmm. account of the pandemic experience. You know, work went up and down, care piled up and by the end of the year, they were kind of like exhausted and like, how are we going to... How are we going to do this? Um, by March, they were kind of really thinking about, well, what does work and care, what does our life look like going forward? And I would have thought that that would still be present in April and even the end of May. Um, and I would hope <laughs> that they're looking to the political parties to, to frame what their possible future might be. And that is really strongly connected to the kinds of wages and conditions that they receive. We've, you know, as we've said, we've seen flat wages growth. Public sector wages cap has led to you know, a real flattening of wages and we've had strikes of teachers and nurses, at least in, in New South Wales. We've had our Premier telling us that he will address that in the June budget. But I think those things, uh, if that doesn't play out in election, I'm kind of a bit perplexed. Well, Keish, I mean, Liz can live in hope, but the reality is the parties <laughs> are not really trying to raise the pandemic much as an issue. I mean, Labor has a wages, a wages policy, but it struck me that in that first Sky debate, a lot of people may not have seen it, but what was striking about it to me was every question asked from the floor was on one of Anthony Albanese's issues, basically. Mm -hmm. But on the aged care nurse force, mm -hmm. the nurse workforce question, he didn't really hammer the wages mm -hmm. thing very much. He didn't knock that out of the park, I didn't think. I mean, why isn't the pandemic featuring here? Does that surprise you? 
Uh, a couple of things. Firstly, people are really, really sick and tired of talking or hearing about the pandemic and have, I think, mm. just, like, emotionally moved on and the politicians know that. Except for all those hundreds of thousands of people with COVID at the moment. Yeah, but I think as well, because a lot of people, they've either had it, they've known people have had mm. it, and it has been, by and large, actually pretty okay for a lot of them. Obviously, not for the many who have had it really, had it really badly, not for the thousands who have died this year, but people do want to move on. There is that sense in the community, there's a weariness. The second thing is that COVID, I think, is awkward for both parties. For, for, for mm. Morrison, you know, he, it, it's a reminder of where they did fail on the vaccine rollout. How about that, that summer this year where everything was just super chaotic and the government just... The rats. Wanted to, yeah, they wanted to go on holiday and, and not talk about it. And for Labor, I think it's a little bit awkward as well because this was something Morrison was gearing up to make this a freedom election for a long time last year. He wanted to say, look, <laughs> Labor's going to put you back in lockdown if you vote for them. And, you know, that, that's why Labor had to be so careful with their messaging on things like reopening and, and stuff like that because any time they looked like there was an inkling that they might be on the side of tougher restrictions, the government could just be like, ha, huh, you're going to Dan Andrews everyone and put you in lockdown forever. Right. So awkward for both parties. No one wants to talk about it anymore. And I think that's a big reason why mm. it hasn't featured in the debate so far. I suppose the issue is it could still be an underlying mm. feature or the underlying feature um, behind the unpopularity of Scott mm. Morrison that keeps oh, showing up. Sure, you know, people sure. sort of red hot. Just on this, though, mm. one thing I'm really waiting to appear in this campaign is a discussion about mental health. I mean, it's an enormous residual issue from this mm. pandemic. Enormous for people. There's plenty of surveys being done out there that show it as one of the top two issues for people. Mental health mm. emerging from the COVID. It's just not being talked about. Why not? Mm. Can anyone give me a sense of that? Duncan? Oh, look, I mean, I think, um, I think you're right. I, I think it's one of these issues that is hard and complex, and the pandemic exposed the lack of a coherent mental health system in Australia. There's lots of bits and pieces, but it, as my colleague Ian Hickey has, has said for many years now, we haven't tied the system together and in a way that allows people to access the mental health care they need. I think we're going to see it emerging in collective bargaining, enterprise bargaining. I think we're going to see it in workplaces become more prominent. I think it's a slow burn, but it isn't featuring in this election. The one thing I would say, Fran, just to sort of push back a bit, I think it's too early to tell about the pandemic. One of the biggest issues potentially in this campaign will be the deficit. Why is the deficit so big? Because the government spent like never before to support people during the pandemic. And what's fascinating to me is people now have an expectation about government yeah. that has fundamentally changed. And that is a huge thing for the Liberal Party in particular to adapt to. And the politics of the deficit, I think, are a long-term uh, consequence of the pandemic, not just in Australia, but across uh, the Western world in particular. I think that's true, but as we've been saying all night, you know, long-termism is not a feature of yeah, our political yeah. system. And at the moment... Governments and oppositions are loving it because they can basically promise anything. Yeah, People are expecting it. The money. No one's worried about the debt and deficit anymore. It's a completely mm. changed atmosphere mm. to five years ago. Um, we are almost out of time. I did promise you the chance to ask questions here. We do have two roving mics. Do we have anyone with a question? <laughs> We've got a question down here in the front. Uh, Julian Assange question. What should we do about Julian Assange? Well, there's a curveball into the campaign. <laughs> Annika. <laughs> is that going to win votes? That's my answer. Okay. Mm. Is, is that going to win votes? There's a lot of bipartisan support for uh, the government leaning on the UK and actually trying to get him brought back to Australia. You'd, you'd be surprised how many Liberals want him brought back. Barnaby Joyce, I think. Barnaby Joyce is the, a big one. Well, George Christensen as well, before he left the party. Um, and, and a lot who will not put their name to it. But, yeah. But I Penny mean, Wong dodged it the other day. They have I been mean, dodging it, yeah, yeah. I don't know why, honestly. I think that they... You can ask, We're you can't the questions, say. not statements. You can ask, you can't say. <laughs> ask. No. <laughs> no, no, please, come on. Uh, well, look, I, I'm going to make a statement. And I saw a call uh, last week with John Shipton, and he said that he had lunch with Anthony Albanese a week or two ago, and he said, Albanese on the record now saying, enough. He Despite is. the wrong, rights and wrongs of it, and absolutely there are rights and wrongs about it, but Albanese is on the public record saying, enough. And you know what that point does come? It came with, and I'm going to forget the name, but remember when John Howard, the guy who was in Guantanamo... Yeah, yeah. Um, David Hicks. 
David, David Hicks. Hicks. John Howard got that message. People thought, enough, mm. enough. Mm. This kid's just a kid. Mm. And I think that moment inevitably comes, but Labor's not going to make a peep of that, that before an election, I wouldn't suggest. Uh, is, there's another question just here. Thank you. Um, can I see policies like um, being promoted, like federal, federal ICAC by Christmas, or 82% renewable energy by 2030, fixing HK, etc. Um, are we making the mistake that just because one side is promoting fewer policies than last time, we come to the immediate, immediate conclusion that there must be no vision at all, rather than perhaps there is just, there's, there's a vision, but it's just not over-promising, potentially compared to last time, because I just hear a lot of discourse about, oh, like, there's no vision, when uh, I, 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 I'm of the view that there might be. Yeah, I, I agree with you that there's a lot of vision in the in the ALP's um, response to the aged care, even if it is just implementing the recommendations from the um, Royal Commission. But um, that seems to be visionary these days, responding to the <laughs> advice of experts. Um, so, you know, good on them. But again, that's a piece of social infrastructure. If all those plans um, for the ALP were rolled out, that causes a huge shift in the quality of life of residents and the quality of life and well-being of their families and the quality of life and well-being of the workers. So that is a vision and that just, would form just some on fundamental that, Liz, change. I mean, aged care, I'm, it's just a hunch really of mine, um, but you've got the research. Aged care, I'm pretty sure, is a vote changer for a lot of people. But, and, and that's why I think Labor's gone there yeah, in, yeah. in some yeah. degree. But it's not sort of resonating hugely in, in, in this election campaign. Do you think it is a vote changer for people? Yeah, look, I mean, like Duncan, I'm not a political scientist, um, <laughs> but I, I do know um, about um, social policy. And again, I guess, you know, you would, given the numbers, given the absolute crisis, given the, um, the fact that... The exasperation of it. The exasperation. And the fact is that in terms of jobs growth, Huge, the most jobs growth is going to be in human and social services. That includes aged care and, and home care services. So doesn't that get some traction? You know, this is what matters. Well, the thing is, there's not going to be jobs growth unless they start training the workforce. So That's true. There's too. a question up here from a woman the in a yellow top that I can see. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my question, simple and broad, is the culture of Australian voters to vote governments out and not in? Mm. Annika? Yeah, well, that's the, pretty much the culture everywhere, I think. It's a sort of a natural response to the, the very sort of style of election campaigns as events, and it's particularly cute in Australia for the reasons that we've mentioned tonight, the three-year cycle, the, the focus on sort of personality. I suppose that hasn't come up, but that's been ever more prominent over the years, um, and the lack of sort of focus on policy too. But I just wanted to... Piggyback off that question with another observation that I think draws together a few things that we've heard tonight. And Fran, you sort of asked the question, why is climate change not on the agenda? I oh, was climate change and also mental health. Yeah, mental health. And there's no coincidence that climate change and mental health are the top two issues of young Australians, mm. of concern for young Australians. Yeah. And so my answer would be they're not on the agenda because young Australians aren't in parties. They are not integrated into our political system. But they in are the enrolled. I think we've got the exactly. highest enrolment levels ever at the mm. moment. I think it's 96% enrolment, which means there's a lot of young people. On absolutely, the, on the absolutely. So they're not there in the, in the parties, in the parliaments, presenting, you know, determining, presenting these policies, but they are there in record numbers mm. that will vote this year. And I think that's part of... The parties haven't responded to and that. And it gets to that long-term, short-term issue. Yeah. I mean, mm. I, I've become increasingly persuaded by an argument of a colleague of mine, David Runciman, in the UK, who's arguing that we should lower the voting age to yeah. 10 or 11. Yeah, yeah. Just, just, yeah. and it's not, it's not being facetious, no. because just think about the issues we're facing. Yeah. And then I'm sure, Annika, you can give us the data on, mm. on you know, how old you are actually shapes your views yeah. about existential crises <laughs> facing the planet, right? So I'm Now you're scaring the little kiddies, that's what they'd say. <laughs> that's that's what right. They'd say. But, but also I, we've I'm had in grave danger of losing control of this debate just as we're about <laughs> to, uh, to end. So I'm going to stop you, Liz. Okay, no worries. But you, everyone gets a last the shot. That, thanks for the questions from the audience, but we are out of time. So let's end on a hopeful note. It's sort of the same question asked at the beginning, but put in a hopeful way, which is, what do you hope for in the last three weeks? Liz, you can go first. Because uh, I cut you off. <laughs> um, I, I would like politicians to li listen to younger voters and face up and confront them and answer their responses. 
and they're avoiding that at the moment. Okay. Duncan? Yeah, just don't underestimate uh, the Australian public. So no. what would you hope to see in the last three weeks? Then? Oh, I think I'd like to see the parties taking a bit more risk with the ideas that are there, as Liz and others have said, in their platforms and really push them out and engage the public on them. Annika? I'd like to see uh, leaders other than the two major party leaders participate in debates. We're going to have some election debates coming up, at least one, if not two more. So you want I want, some, I, I want the full I want the full range of voices that are in this campaign to be present in those debates. Electrifying idea, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Anthony. <laughs> You're not getting off scot free, no, <laughs> no. I mean, look, I, I happen to think that um, the Reserve Bank decision next Tuesday might determine the whole future of this campaign and determine the last three weeks, but we'll see what happens. I mean, if they make a decision next Tuesday, I think the campaign will go off on a very different tangent. Sorry to be a journalist on you, but that wasn't my question. What would you like to see? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, look, I, I, part, of my, my, part of my response to that is simply, I actually barely see any of the campaign. Oh, I'm sorry, buried. So, you know, <laughs> I, last, I, yeah. last word from you. Look, Australia's <laughs> got one of the, the whitest parliaments, mm. if any, in the Western world. Um, and I don't think the major parties are really doing enough to change that, but I would like to see a few more diverse candidates both get up, and or, which I think will happen, and also I think, you know, voters in very migrant-heavy parts of Sydney and mm. Melbourne will decide this election. So let's, mm. let's see what they decide. Mm. All right, well, on that note, thank you. Could you please thank our panel? Duncan Iverson, Liz Hill, Anna Kadalia, Kishore Nathiraman, and Anthony Green. Thank you. And... Can I say thanks to you, all of you, for coming out on a sort of pretty wet and dra dra drab night, really, in Sydney, um, to the Sydney Ideas Forum. They're always fantastic. There's more coming up. Um, there'll be some in May. I can't personally can't wait for post-election part two <laughs> that was promised to us by Lisa earlier. So if you want to find out more, head to the Sydney Ideas website. And again, thank you, all of you. And, you know, vote well, vote often. You know what they say. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app.